we read Yeshua left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed. Oh, he's just a carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Thank you, Rabbi Glenn, and the technology has cooperated. So in this passage, we see Yeshua's teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Synagogue attendance wasn't required in the first century, but was something devoted Jewish people did. Yeshua sets an example for us of the importance of congregational attendance. You know, if it was good enough for Yeshua, I think it's good enough for us. So, you know, when I read this passage, you know, imagine attending a service, right? A synagogue service, you know, if you go to a church, a church service, and the Son of God himself is giving the drasha. You know, I think we do a pretty good job giving a good drasha here at Shema. There's definitely uh, pastors and preachers that we all admire over the centuries who we would say uh, probably could give a, a better word than us. But imagine the Son of God giving the weekly message. You know, that would have been a powerful, powerful moment. We have seen already how powerful Yeshua's words are. And this, this audience had an opportunity to hear from him. You know, as we see, though, not everyone responds positively to the teachings of Messiah Yeshua. You know, they acknowledge, and this is important, I think, in the passage, right? They acknowledge that what they are hearing is full of wisdom. And they even acknowledge that he can perform miracles, right? So they're not denying these things. And yet we see they're very upset. You know, they refused to believe in him because he was different now than how they knew him before. They knew him as Jesus the carpenter, Jesus the blue-collar man, not a well-trained scribe of the law, right? Who is this upstart carpenter guy coming back to his hometown and telling them about salvation and all sorts of other teachings that he would have been giving at this time, right? They say this is Jesus, son of Mary, and the rest of his family. They know his brothers. They know his sisters. They knew him as a child, and they could not believe what was now happening. Their words also show that Mary had more than one child, uh, despite what Catholics might tell you. Uh, Mary clearly had more than one child. And like Isaiah 53 prophesied, this came to my mind as I was reading this, right? They esteemed him not. They rejected him. We go on. Verse 4 and 5 and 6. Then Yeshua told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. You know, Yeshua remarks that a prophet, the first time, by the way, referring to himself as one here in Mark, is honored everywhere but at home. This seems to be a saying that was maybe known at the time. And it's definitely a true one because as we've seen throughout Mark, um, Huge crowds have followed him everywhere he's gone, right? He's got to get into boats to get away from him. We've read about the amazing miracles he's been performing, right? Casting out demons, uh, raising the dead. But in his hometown, we see the opposite. We see disbelief and few miracles because they do not have faith. Yeshua is amazed by their lack of faith, despite the fact they acknowledge the wisdom and other miracles he has done. 
you know, their preconceptions about him lead to a cynical and prideful response. And the lesson here as well is there's a relationship, it seems, between miracles and faith that their lack of faith in the Lord meant that the Holy Spirit was not going to work among them in the same mighty way he had done before. This connects back, of course, to that woman with the uh, grievous wound and how her faith made her well. Uh, rabbis, any any thoughts on this? Uh, Rabbi Lauren? I think it's very important that Yeshua routinely joined his faith community, uh, going to the synagogue. Uh, Luke tells us that he went to synagogue regularly, as was his custom. And it is so essential for um, Christians, Messianic Jews, to be actively involved in a local faith community with good God-ordained leaders. Yeshua is setting an example for us, and we should definitely follow his example. I don't understand. Uh, So-called Christians and Messianic Jews who don't want to gather with um, their faith community. If you're a real believer, that should be, you know, one of the desires of your heart. You should be looking forward to gathering with your brothers and sisters and having the opportunity to pray and worship with them and hear the word of God and encourage them and be encouraged by them. Uh, I don't understand so-called believers that don't have that that desire, that eagerness. They're certainly not um, following the example of Messiah uh, Yeshua. Yeah, you know, if good point, Rabbi Lauren. If if uh, if somebody is says, well, I'm following Yeshua, I'm following Jesus. Well, if it's Saturday morning or Sunday morning, you would be following him into the assembly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're really following him. Follow him. Um, one of the things I wanted to touch on also, and I appreciated your uh, your thoughts on this, Rabbi Jerry. Um, you know, this this statement Yeshua made, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. You know, think about Israel's prophets. He's referring to prophets in a larger sense. And though many of them were persecuted, nevertheless, prophets were held in high esteem uh, by the godly remnant in Israel. You read about people being fearful For example, when Samuel, the prophet, came to their town and they would ask him, are you coming in peace? Uh, Prophets were treated with respect and with hospitality. But, you know, in their own hometowns where people knew them from childhood, they were often resented. And I think it has to do with the sin of envy, of jealousy, you know, whereas we should be we should rejoice that people that we knew years ago made it big, but as often as not, deep down, we resent that they are famous. And I think I think there's something for us there too. The fact that um, you know Yeshua was not really respected and welcomed uh, at his hometown synagogue, and I think we need to examine ourselves when people that we know have accomplish things greater than we have or are, have more notoriety than we have that we don't become bitter and resentful ourselves. 
about this concept of a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. Uh, There's an old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. And I know that that is true. Uh, People that we are familiar with, um, (laughs) we've known them maybe since they were a child. We don't have the same level of respect for them that we would have for someone else with the same accomplishments. So this is just a principle of human nature that uh, familiarity with someone um, breeds contempt. And Yeshua is clearly receiving a lack of respect, contempt from his own town, and we've seen a lack of respect from his own relatives and his own family. And I think a lesson for us is we should pretty much expect the same treatment from our hometown, from our relatives, from our family. Even though we've made this amazing discovery of, you know, the three-in-one God and salvation and eternal life and God is transforming us and, you know, we're learning the word of God and we're hopefully much better and (laughs) wiser than we might have been five or ten years ago, we shouldn't expect to have um, those who know us best not be impressed with our new spiritual maturity. So just like Yeshua is experiencing um, contempt, rejection from those closest to him, his hometown, his relatives, you would think that they would be the most appreciative. I mean, he's like the the hometown hero. Um, That is not happening, and we should expect the same treatment from those who know us best. Uh, One more thing. It says, uh, Mark tells us that Yeshua was amazed at their unbelief. It's only recorded two times um, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that Yeshua was amazed by something. Uh, Not a lot amazed him. But this is one of the two recorded incidents where something amazed him. The first one was the faith of the Roman centurion, his great faith. And the second thing that amazed him was the unbelief of the people of his home town of Nazareth. Their lack of faith um, in him, in God, they should have known him the best. Um, They should have been the most loyal, the most faithful. They weren't. That was amazing, but in a negative way. Yeah. In a sense, it's a a thumbnail of a thumbnail sketch of uh, the bigger picture that Israel, who ought to have been just ready and eager to receive the Messiah did not, for the most part, whereas non-Jewish people welcomed him uh, greatly. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Well, we go on from here um, to this next section where Yeshua is going to send out his 12 disciples. So let me pick up. It says, then Yeshua went from village to village teaching the people or at verse 7 here, and he called his 12 disciples together and began sending them out two by two 
giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. He told them to take nothing for their journey except a walking stick, no food, no traveler's bag, no money. Verse 9 says he allowed them to wear sandals, but not to take a change of clothes. Wherever you go, he said, stay in the same house until you leave town. Now, presumably, Messiah Yeshua received a better reception in other villages than he did in Nazareth. Why stay where you're not welcome? (laughs) But beyond that, Yeshua knew that he had a very short time to impart his teaching and to equip these disciples. So he resumed his itinerant preaching, and at this point, he sent out the 12 two by two to maximize the spread of his message. And I think that's something we ought to take to heart. He wants his teaching disseminated far and wide. Are you willing to go? Everything, here's the thing, everything about his uh, instructions to the disciples before he sent them out took into account human nature and was designed to keep them both humble and accountable. Let me give you a few examples. For example, he sent them out two by two, not just because it's safer, but to keep them accountable to one another. You know, you do well to follow that example. Evangelism by twos is a really good idea. I'll probably talk a little more about that, but he also directed them to stay with one family for the duration of their stay in any given town. They weren't to go house to house one night in each house. They were to stay with one family. Being connected with Yeshua, who was already renowned for his many miracles, would give his disciples a certain measure of celebrity status. And, you know, staying just one night with a family might cause that family to treat you like a celebrity. But after two or three days, you would no longer be a celebrity. You would just be a house guest. And that would help keep you humble. He gave them spiritual authority to cast out demons. And power like that can easily stoke a person's pride. So they were instructed not to take any money or provisions with them. And why is that? Well, I think that would require them to depend on the hospitality of others. And when you have to depend on help from others, that can help keep you humble. But let's talk about this authority. Uh, Note also that Messiah Yeshua gave them the authority to cast out demons. This is before Yeshua's resurrection and the sending of the Holy Spirit at Shavuot, at Pentecost. So the disciples could not have that authority in themselves. And even now, no human being has intrinsic authority over evil spirits. The authority we have is what I would call a deputized authority. A deputized authority. It originates with the Lord. He might deputize a person to do this work, but it comes from him. It originates with Adonai. And it's arrogant and dangerous for people to talk, to begin just talking cavalierly to demons and trying to tell them what to do. The gift 
to cast out demons is a legitimate and real gift, but it is comparatively rare and it is not to be taken lightly. It's serious business. Let me go on to verse 11. He goes on to say, but if any place refuses to welcome you or to listen to you, shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show that you have abandoned those people to their fate. You know, verse 11 to me was reminiscent of God's dealings with Sodom and Gomorrah, where God's angels or messengers, as it were, were unwelcome and where Lot's appeal to them for decency fell on deaf ears. And something greater than angels is here. Yeshua's disciples were acting as messengers. Again, they, they're like deputies. They've been deputized to act on his behalf. To the extent that they were welcomed, that town was in effect welcoming Messiah himself. And if that town didn't welcome them or listen to them, they were rejecting Messiah himself. So how does this apply to you and me? You are Messiah's messenger. Those who welcome you and those who are willing to hear what you have to say, though they are not yet believers, are by extension welcoming him. And the reverse is also true. Those who reject you aren't really rejecting you at all, but are rejecting Messiah Yeshua. Just as he didn't stay where he wasn't welcome, there is a time to let certain people go. And to now bring the good news to those who are peaceable, who are reasonable, who are willing to give ear to what you might have to say. Verse 12, and it says, so the disciples went out telling everyone they met to repent of their sins and turn to God. And they cast out many demons and healed many sick people, anointing them with olive oil. <laughs> now, you notice what the disciples didn't preach? They didn't go out telling everyone, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Mm. Now, it's true that God loves us. It's true that he has purposes for us. But a genuine presentation of the good news must be prefaced with the harsh reality that we are sinful and human beings are in desperate need of atonement in order to be made right with God, and that Yeshua, Jesus, is the one and only source of that atonement. So as Rabbi Lauren is prone to say, you know, before you give the good news, you have to give the bad news. Otherwise, we're really not presenting the gospel faithfully. People must repent, not only of sinful practices, but of the greatest sin, of disbelief, and then turn in faith to Messiah. The 12 did go out preaching repentance, and it says they also cast out many demons. Many. Why do we, I, you know, I ask the question, why do we seemingly see so little of demonic activity in America in the 21st century? Are there quantitatively fewer demons in existence today? than 2,000 years ago? Or have they been reassigned elsewhere 
or perhaps have their tactics changed? Is it possible there is demonic activity all around us, but we're oblivious? Or maybe we've assigned different labels to what long ago was considered demon possession and demonic activity. Now, I'm not sure I have the answers to those questions, but if we are going to serve the Lord on his terms, he may take us to places that are well outside our comfort zones. Are you willing? And perhaps even more pointedly, are you prayed up? Are you walking in step with the Spirit? That's a serious matter. I fear that most of us, and myself included, are ill-prepared to carry out deliverance ministry, but we should want more of God's working in and through us. And then, uh, you know, why did the disciples anoint people with oil? Well, oil has many beneficial qualities. It's medicinal. It smooths things. It adds richness. In so many ways, oil is a perfect symbol of the work of the Holy Spirit. So it makes sense to anoint with oil those for whom we are asking God for healing. And then uh, Rabbi Lauren and Rabbi Jerry, uh, I asked kind of an uncomfortable question. Um, did Judas cast out demons and heal sick people along with the other 11? And if so, what does that teach us? Well, you know, most likely Judas was casting out demons and healing people along with the other 11 disciples. This is a sobering thought. A person can start out well, but end really badly. A person can even experience the supernatural working of God and yet still turn away later on. How we finish this race is much more important than how we began. And that is how I think you ought to pray. Lord, please help me remain in Messiah. Help me continue to walk with you and cause me to finish my life well. And by the way, did you ever wonder who was the other disciple that was schlepping around with Judas going from village to village? Who was the other one that was going around with Judas and what might it have been like for them? Rabbi Lauren, Rabbi Jerry, your your thoughts on that? Good, good, good thoughts, thought. Rabbi Glenn. Rabbi Jerry, why don't you any anything you want to add? Well, I think you know, I think Rabbi Glenn uh, really covered most of it. I just want to emphasize, you know, what's interesting is, so Yeshua sends the disciples in twos to these towns, right? So you have the two disciples, whether it's Jews or not. You know, I, I also agree with you, Rabbi Glenn. I do think he was performing miracles and at this point from all intents and purposes seem to be another one of the 12 but so they go to these towns right and so some will accept them and some will reject them and they kick the dust from their feet what's interesting is we don't see yeshua saying well you know since they didn't listen the first time you really should go back like three four five six seven times they really you know you really have like 20 chances to listen to the gospel and once you but once you hit that maximum limit it's like, no you know they're, they're given their opportunity they will you know should the lord uh not take them uh their lives before the end of yeshua's ministry they may have the opportunity to hear him again but there's no guarantee right uh it's not that god you know 
God is very patient with us, right? And a lot of witnessing, uh, particularly in Jewish evangelism, can be done over years or even decades. Rabbi Lauren, I know, and you, Rabbi Glenn, have stories of people you ministered to for years and years before uh, they came to faith. And for some of you listening, that may be your story as well. And, you know, it's great that, you know, we know the end of that story, but we, we have to be aware that, you know, we're given an opportunity to listen and respond, but there's no promise of 20 or 30 times. You know, we never know when our life will be required of us. And so I just see that emphasis here in this kicking the dust of the feet to say, you know what, the door was open and now the door has been closed. And you really, you know, maybe in that moment, um, it may have caused some people some conviction to, because again, you know, why, why publicly do this if you aren't trying to make a point to those who are going to see this, right? Uh, that this is being done to hopefully cause them to respond. So just something interesting that I noticed in this passage. It's it's a limited time offer, as they say on TV commercials. And, you know, it was true with my my own mother. Um, there was a point where she was very, very open and really right at the threshold of believing. And she backed off. She was afraid of what others would think. And as the years went on, she grew harder and harder and harder. Um, you know, now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. I have a couple thoughts. This whole passage is about Yeshua himself going from village to village, teaching the people, proclaiming the message of salvation and repentance, the gospel, the good news, which focuses on him. And he sends his 12 students, his 12 disciples, the future leaders of his community out to do the same thing. So Yeshua is the most important human being who ever lived. Uh, and we want to follow his example, obviously. Going out, taking the initiative, going to others, being proactive and telling them the truth, teaching them the truth about God and salvation Yeshua was passionate about that. He was focused on that. He did it himself. And those men who were closest to him, you know, did the same thing. <laughs> Going out, you know, this is not just limited to Jesus and the 12 apostles. <laughs> this is for each one of us. He's living in us. We're his representatives now. We're his um uh, delegates, delegated authority, his emissaries, as much as we possibly can in our own spheres, we want to be doing the same thing that Yeshua and his most important disciples did. Go out, tell people the truth, uh, tell them they need to uh, you know, repent, turn to God away from their sins and their own ideas and do what we can to, you know, help uh, the people that we're in contact with. So Yeshua and the disciples are modeling for us um, what we are to be doing and focused on. And I think the instructions he gave to the disciples, take nothing for your journey except a walking stick, no food, no traveler's bag, no money, don't even take a change of clothes, it shows, uh, okay, so it shows you have to trust God to provide. If you're doing what God is calling you to do, trust God that he will provide for your needs. If he's calling you to do something, he'll supply everything you need to get that job accomplished. Trust him. 
And it also shows uh, a focus on um, non-materialism. You know, we are, it's so easy to get caught up with things and money and, you know, material things. This is the exact opposite. Uh, As much as we can, we want to, you know, not be focused on, on wealth, prosperity, material things, but travel, you know, light (laughs) through this world uh, with a minimal amount of focus on material things for the goal of advancing um, the kingdom of God as much as we possibly can. One more thought. Uh, If any place refuses to welcome you or listen to you, shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show that you have abandoned those people to their fate. It's not easy to tell someone, if you don't listen to me, and this message I'm giving you right now about Yeshua, King Messiah, the Son of God, salvation, repentance, heaven, hell, day of judgment, eternal life. If you don't believe me, you are in store for a world of hurt. This is a very serious warning. And I, you know, Yeshua is telling his disciples, if people don't listen to you, warn them, make it crystal clear that they are in very serious trouble. And I think we should be doing the same thing. Uh, warn, we, we need to do more warning. <laughs> Judgment is coming. Uh, hell is a reality. Heaven's a reality. If you don't turn from your selfish ways and your self-centered thinking and serving yourself, you know, you are going to meet God on the day of judgment and it is not going to go well for you. So this idea of warning people uh, who aren't listening, uh, I think we should uh, be doing that ourselves. All right. The death of John the Baptist. Yeshua was having a tremendous impact on the nation of Israel. He was the talk of the country from the common people all the way to the king. Verse 14, Herod Antipas, the king, soon heard about Yeshua because everyone was talking about him. Some were saying, This must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's why he can do such miracles. So uh, I guess the idea of resurrection, uh, reincarnation, John the Baptist raised from the dead. Others said he's the prophet Elijah. Still others said he is a prophet like the other great prophets of the past. So. Everyone was aware that Yeshua of Nazareth Nazareth was doing mighty miracles. Um, And that was shocking to the Jewish people. There had not been a miracle-working prophet among us for, well, I mean, Malachi was the last prophet, uh, you know, 400 B.C., Uh, But Malachi, as far as we know, didn't do any miracles. There were only a couple of prophets who really did miracles. Uh, So 
it was stunning that Yeshua of Nazareth was doing miracles. This was uh, powerful uh, among the Jewish people. So everyone knew he was doing miracles. Uh, some thought he was the prophet Elijah. Of course, the prophet Elijah was one of those great miracle-working prophets. He never died. The Lord promised to send Elijah back to us to you know, prepare us for the Lord's return. Maybe this was Elijah. Uh, maybe he's just a prophet like the other great prophets of the past. Uh, Herod thought that, well, some were saying this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. John the Baptist had been killed, and maybe the maybe the miracle working powers of John um, were transferred to Yeshua. But what all three ideas have in common was that you should, everyone knew that Yeshua of Nazareth was doing amazing things that had not happened among the Jewish people in centuries and centuries and centuries. Uh, Rabbi Glenn, Rabbi Jerry, any thoughts? Um, it, uh, just I was going to reiterate what you were talking about. Um, nothing like this had been seen in Israel uh, probably going almost all the way back to the time of Elijah and Elisha. Uh, so the whole country is astir, but think about this. Um, you have one man traveling throughout Israel and performing these incredible miracles, and everybody's talking about him. And that goes to the whole issue of expectation. People were longing for the Messiah. They knew that there was this promised Redeemer who was going to come. They had an awareness. They had some, I think a lot of people had some wrong views. They were looking for the, the great warrior king going to ride in on his white horse and get rid of Caesar and overthrow Rome and make Israel you know, uh, sovereign once again. Uh, so they had some wrong ideas, but there was expectation. Um, I wish we had a little more of that in our own day, uh, this expectation in the soon coming, for, and it will be the second coming of Messiah. You know, if, if only his people had that same fervor and yearning for his return, um, and I think we could use more of that. Rabbi Jerry, any thoughts? Just one small thought is, you know, I think a lot of this was intentional by Messiah Yeshua, that this kind of conversation happened. I think it was intentional because... You know, when you just give somebody the answer to something, they'll go, oh, that's interesting. And they'll usually disengage and, and walk away. But by provoking these com conversations of, you know, did you hear about this Yeshua guy? Did you hear about this? Who do you think he is? Who do you think he is? It's, it's making people think. It's making people curious. And because nobody has an easy answer, because it's such an unusual thing, it makes people seek him out. You know, it's part of human nature, our curiosity, which can get us into trouble sometimes. But I think part of this is just, you know, uh, pulling on our human curiosity as a way to uh, draw us closer to Yeshua. And you know, I think there's a lesson here for us in that, too. Um, I know sometimes we talk about this in apologetics is, you know, don't just give everybody the, you know, the, the answer immediately to a question. Right. It, you know, ask them their opinion, get involved in a conversation with them. Um, and then, you know, 
bring the answer out. But the idea of engaging with people is something that we want to emphasize as well. It's more than just you ask a question, let me recite to you all these facts. You ask your next question, let me recite to you all these facts. You know, there's a there's a play on human nature going on here, I think, intentionally. Okay. So Yeshua is the talk of the country. Uh, John the Baptist was also the talk of the entire country before Yeshua made himself known through his public ministry. Uh, Yeshua said of John that he was the greatest prophet to ever have arisen. And he too was like a, a bright shining light in a Israel that had not had a prophet since Malachi, you know, 400 years. And John made a powerful impact on the nation of Israel. So now we're shifting to John and how this great forerunner um, of the Messiah, what happened to him? Uh, you might think that, you know, Yeshua is, you know, of course, he's the King Messiah. Um, he's going to have a glorious ending and uh, his forerunner will you know, be at his right hand uh, in glory with him. That is not what happened to John. Verse 16, when Herod heard about Yeshua, he said, John, the man I beheaded has come back from the dead. So this was the king's way of explaining the miraculous power at work in Yeshua. John, the man I beheaded, has come back from the dead. For Herod had sent soldiers to arrest and imprison John as a favor to Herodias. She had been his brother Philip's wife, but Herod had married her. John had been telling Herod, it is against God's law for you to marry your brother's wife. You know, it's not easy to speak truth to power, to engage in the great moral and social issues of the day. But John the Baptist was fearless, and he had been telling the king, it's against God's law for you to marry your brother's wife. That took tremendous uh, courage, but it's something that a true prophet will do. Verse 19, so Herodias bore a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But without Herod's approval, she was powerless. For Herod respected John, and knowing that he was a good and holy man, he protected him. Herod was greatly disturbed whenever he talked with John, but even so, he liked to listen to him. Herodias's chance finally came on Herod's birthday. He gave a party for his high government officials, army officers, and the leading citizens of Galilee. Then his daughter, also named Herodias, came in and performed a dance that greatly pleased Herod and his guests. Ask me for anything you like, the king said to the girl, and I will give it to you. He even vowed, I will give you whatever you ask up to half my kingdom. Wow, that's uh, quite a promise. 
she went out and asked her mother, what should I ask for? Her mother told her, ask for the head of John the Baptist. So the girl hurried back to the king and told him, I want the head of John the Baptist right now on a tray. Then the king deeply regretted what he had said. But because of the vows he had made in front of his guests, he couldn't refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner to the prison to cut off John's head and bring it to him. The soldier beheaded John in the prison brought his head on a tray and gave it to the girl who took it to her mother. When John's disciples heard what had happened, they came to get his body and they buried it in a tomb. Wow, what a sad story for the greatest prophet who ever lived uh, apart from the Son of God himself. And there are quite a few lessons to be learned. Uh, Herod knew that John was a good and holy man, and he liked to listen to him, even though he was greatly disturbed whenever he talked with John. He respected John and protected John and liked to listen to him, but... In spite of all that, eventually he killed him anyway. And I think <laughs> I think we can expect similar treatment from some people. Uh, people will sense that we are different, um, you know, holy men, holy women, and they may like to talk to us on occasion, but also be disturbed when they talk to us. And ultimately, they might not turn to faith. And eventually, they could turn on us just like um, the king turned on John. We can, <laughs> if we're doing our job like John the Baptist did, uh, we could expect a similar dynamic from time to time with various people. So don't interpret a mild interest in what you are telling someone to be a sign of, you know, profound interest and willingness to be transformed. I, I have had so many people, uh, you know, tell me, Rabbi Lauren, you know, I was talking to this guy and he was listening and you know i think he's ready to become a believer uh no he was just showing a little mild interest he had no serious um interest of uh turning from you know his sins and his own way of thinking and and serving the living god again uh john the baptist um you know this great forerunner this great prophet is killed in a shameful way beheaded uh, the son of god himself is going to you know be arrested you know uh, interrogated tortured crucified these were great men uh why should we expect a life that is significantly different from 
those two great men. Even the disciples that Yeshua is training, most of them were um, executed in, um, you know, for their faith. Persecution, rejection um, is really to be expected for the followers of Messiah Yeshua. Rabbi Glenn, Rabbi Jerry, any thoughts? Rabbi Glenn, you're you're Rabbi muted. Glenn, you're muted. There we go. Sorry, there had been a siren going off down the road. Um, yeah, I had two questions that I wanted to bring up. Uh, the first is John confronts Herod Antipas about, uh, and he says, you know, it's a violation of God's law for you to have your husband's, uh, your brother's wife. It's it's against God's law. Why would John expect Herod to be uh, subject to the Torah? Um, he was a Jewish person. Everyone's subject to the Torah. Was Herod Antipas Jewish? I believe I believe so, historically. I think he was, or at least part Jewish. I think he was Jewish. Yeah, part I Jewish. think he was part Edomian, part Jewish, something like that. Anyway, it, people are not, I asked the question because people are generally not aware of that fact. They think of Herod as simply a Roman ruler, a Gentile Roman ruler. But in fact, uh, John's expectation that Herod Antipas uh, should be following Torah uh, is a clue. But I think most people just kind of gloss over that. So thank you. The other question I had is uh, the NLT, and this might be an issue with the NLT. It says the girl's name was also Herodias, that Herodias was, uh, you know, uh, this woman that uh, Herod illeg illegitimately took as his wife, uh, and that Herodias was the daughter's name as well. I was always under the impression that, uh, first of all, she wasn't his daughter, really. She was Herodias's daughter, and I was under the impression that her name was Salome. Uh, thoughts about that? Is that an NLT issue? Well, I definitely know that she was his stepdaughter, so that would be an NLT issue. And I was under the impression she was Salome as well when we got when I was listening to this and looking into it. I was curious about that. So I don't know if there's a variant that has that that they're pulling from. But uh, she is definitely his stepdaughter. Uh, I wondered the same thing, Rabbi Glenn. Um, I did not look into it. I've, the the NLT is very well put together. You know, a lot of great scholarship. They, I, I am sure they had reasons uh, to translate it like this. Um, I don't know all the details. We can we can look into it further. Anything else? Well, uh, one thing that comes to me, I love the fact that John the Baptist spoke truth to power. It would, he put himself at jeopardy. You, it, it, it's a dangerous thing to speak truth to a king who's doing something wrong. And I think there's a lesson there for us today. Uh, we don't have a king, uh, you know, we are the government. 
right? The way our country is structured, uh, the people, citizens are the government. But our nation is doing a lot of things wrong. And let me just bring up the issue of abortion. That is so wrong. It is so grievous. It is so heinous a sin, killing these human beings in the womb. If we just leave them alone, they would be born and <laughs> become boys and girls, men and women who have the potential to live with God forever. And I don't know, we've killed 50, 60 million of them um, since Roe v. Wade was passed. And uh, we're still killing them every day in Michigan and around the United States. A lot of churches, a lot of pastors, a lot of Christians will not speak truth to power on this very important issue. John the Baptist saw a moral wrong, uh, the king taking the wife of his brother illegally, it was uh, not right, and he had the courage and the faith to speak truth to power in a very, much more dangerous situation. If John the Baptist could speak truth to power, on an important, you know, moral issue of his day, shouldn't we be speaking the truth to power? Uh, you know, the majority, I think, are pro-abortion, so, you know, they have power. Shouldn't pastors speak out on the issue of abortion or transgenderism or homosexuality, lesbianism, these are, you know, very important uh, moral issues of our day, and yet so many pastors, uh, churches, just only want to preach, you know, something nice, nothing controversial. Don't want to rock the boat. Yeah, I think it's yeah, but, true. I think you know we have to preach the, you know, the whole counsel of God, you know, uh, morally uh, in terms of business practices, right, as well. And there, there are so many issues in so many ways our society is corrupt. And, you know, if it goes against the majority, most people are not willing to do it. Yeah. Uh, when we think back on what was the uh, supreme moral crisis in the, uh, you know, 200 years ago in our country, it was slavery. And slavery might never have been abolished were it not for, in, in great part, um, pastors who courageously spoke out against it, pastors and individuals who broke existing laws to help slaves escape to the North. Um, and yet, uh, you know, one of the things I feel like we need to decry is that there are pastors out there who remain silent and they say, oh, we don't get into politics. We just preach the gospel. I think they need to be rebuked as well for for what I consider to be cowardice. Um, being against abortion, murdering babies in the womb, being pro-life um, <laughs> is not politics. I mean, it, <laughs> there is a political component, but it's it's morality. It's, you know, good versus evil. It's right versus wrong. Right. Yeah. At its most basic level. Just to add one other point, then to get back to the passage with 
a couple comments. You know, not only were there pastors who were silent about the issue of slavery in this country, but there were pastors who tried to use scripture to justify the continuation of slavery. And, you know, we see that today with uh, the issue of abortion. Yeah. Yeah. We see the issue of it today with abortion, where not only do you have pastors who are silent on this issue, which is terrible, but even more heinous is there are those people who claim to be pastors of God who will teach that abortion is okay. And, you know, it's, may may history judge them as we judge those pastors who uh, taught that slavery was okay in this country. You know, yeah. and obviously, you know, if they do not repent of that, there will be serious judgment in the world to come. Uh, but going going back to the passage, you know, one of the things that what stands out to me about Herod in this is his overwhelming lust, right? <laughs> he lusts after it's an incestuous lust, right? He lusts after this woman who he's technically related to. Uh, the woman, you know, his her daughter, his stepdaughter dances in front of uh, him. I believe the implication there, and what I looked up, uh, is this was a very seductive, you know, dance. And so he's drunk, he's horny, and he gives this rash promise. I'm just put, I'm call it like it is. I mean, this is what the scripture says. Okay, he's he's drunk and clearly, you know, he liked what he saw, and he gives this rash promise that he could give away half the kingdom to her. What's interesting about this is, you know, he he was under Roman authority, right? He had no ability to actually give away half the kingdom. He was he was answering to other people. But the point here is, is he gets he lets things get away from himself and he makes this rash promise and then doubles down by um, fulfilling it. And so it's just it's just a reminder that, you know, we have to be very careful with our words and our actions. And, you know, Herod did not get to this place. He, he found himself in right here overnight. Uh, there was a you know, from the historical record of Herod, there was a steady, like, gradual decline in his moral character, in his uh, religious beliefs. And, you know, we just, I think this is, here in the text, it's something we need to be aware of and to um, nip in the bud before we get to this point. But it's it's incredibly heinous. Incredibly there is, heinous. Yeah, there is a real moral contrast here between John the Baptist and Herod. I mean, there is, there are these polar opposite moral bearings. Uh, John is courageous. He speaks out. He calls sin, sin. Then there's Herod, lustful and cowardly. Uh, he makes a rash promise, but it says that he was, af- he was afraid not to make good on the promise because of all of his dinner guests. That's cowardice. I mean, look at these opposites. Courage and cowardice. And I think we're meant to take that away from this in large part. And, you know, again, just to kind of a last little thought about uh, today. Today, abortion is the supreme moral crisis that we face. And how we address it or fail to address it as religious leaders uh, will be our legacy. How will we be remembered? I want to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know? I want to be like Shifra and Pua. I want to be like those who stood up to the powers that be and said, no, this is wrong. We're not doing it. Um, but history will look back at us one way or the other. One one final comment. It's, you said that that perked my mind. You know, looking at the structure of Mark 6, right, this story coming after the previous one, and I think it's intentional in that because there are parallels, you know, Herod and the people in these towns both heard 
God's truth preached to them. And we see there's, you know, those who respond, but we see here they each story ends with the rejection of God's truth, right? If these people reject you, kick the dust from your feet. And, you know, Herod had, you know, he, he liked to listen to John because on some level, you know, he knew what he was doing was wrong. But he refused to change. He was given all these opportunities, like Rabbi Glenn is saying here, to stand up for God, to stand up what is for what it was right, and to repent. And we see at the end of Herod's life, the historical record shows us that Herod ended up losing his kingdom because he was exiled. You know, he gives this rash promise to give away half the kingdom, and he has no kingdom to give away by the end of his life. And so, you know, again, there, there's a timetable for uh, for repentance. Good thoughts. Good thoughts, Rabbi Glenn, Rabbi Jerry. Thank 